0: Hey guys, it's Woj. Remember to tune in to The Last Dance, which continues this Sunday at 9pm Eastern on ESPN. Listen to the wrap-up podcast hosted by Jalen and Jacoby immediately following the broadcast, which is brought to you by State Farm. When you want the real deal like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Coverage is also brought to you by AT&T. You can find Jalen and Jacoby wherever you get your podcasts. Now more than ever, We have to look out for each other and count on each other. Marathon wants you to know that you can count on them for high-quality, top-tier gas. Marathon gasolines are formulated with STP additives. They keep your vehicle running at peak performance by optimizing fuel economy, removing those ugly deposit buildups, and by reducing emissions. And right now, you can get $0.05 off every gallon every day with Make It Count Rewards from Marathon. Plus, you can earn points for additional savings on fuel, airfare, hotels, and more. This is definitely a deal you can count on. It's quick and easy to join. Just download the free Make It Count app or go to makeitcount.com slash radio and start saving today. This offer is valid only at participating marathon stations. Remember, wherever you need to go, be safe. The people at Marathon are behind you all the way. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here with Rachel Nichols and Bobby Marks. Uh, Rachel, the host of the the Jump every day on ESPN, Saturday Night Jump. If we ever get another,
1: we ever get to have James again Season ABC. going and
0: <laughs> and of course, what is it, a fourth grade teacher now? Right? Is it a fourth grade Third. teacher, Rachel? Third, Third grade. grade,
1: yeah, but you know. Uh, I feel, I, I don't know if I feel for the parents who have kids in high school because that's a level of math I no longer understand. Um, I did once, not anymore, or the, the people who have kids in kindergarten because that is a whole separate challenge too. I know for my friends with younger kids.
0: Yeah. And Bobby Marks, our front office insider, who's, uh, for him, fortunate to be married, married to a teacher. Ah. So that's certainly paying some dividends in the Marks household these days.
2: You you're right but I did have 5th grade math. I think the first day of we were quarantined, and as I said before I can figure out the salary cap, revenue sharing, I couldn't figure out decimals. <laughs> it stumped me. So I had to pass.
0: <laughs> Bobby told me one of the best stories of of their quarantine uh I said Bobby's wife Michelle's a teacher and and I think one of your sons is in her school, right? Is
2: yeah, Cooper's in fifth grade. Yeah.
0: Cooper's there. And somebody called the house to like, for Cooper to play video games or something and he got chastised. Is that what happened?
2: Well, because my wife has him for, <laughs> for school and he, he didn't show up for class for three days in a row. So he called the house, <laughs> wanted to play Fortnite. <laughs> and she said to him, where you been? <laughs> you've been, you've been in no show for three days. <laughs> you've turned
0: uh, your son into an inadvertent narc. <laughs> that is great. That is great. Well, guys, a lot, you know, really. I think as an eventful of a day as we've had in some while on Friday in terms of uh, these hiatus and trying to get a sense of, of how the league will proceed, how it might proceed. And uh, Ra- Rachel and I talked about this a little bit offline, but where the league went to in the last 24 hours on testing of players, if you wanted some reasons to believe that, if you wanted more reason to believe that the league is really carving a pathway toward coming back, whether that's in June or July, the fact that number one, the league decided to allow teams to test players coming into their facilities uh, in marketplaces like Orlando, Los Angeles, uh, where it met the threshold of a league the league saying that if local healthcare workers had adequate testing, not the general population. Although I think the organizations in those places were using the general population as a barometer. That like everybody in LA who wants a test, according to the mayor, can get a coronavirus test. And then Orlando, uh, similar edict there. Uh, number one, that tells you something about how the league feels about using tests on players. And then. From my reporting on Adam Silver call with the Players Association on Friday night, the fact that Adam said there that he believed by the time the league was ready to return to play, uh, would be ready to return to play, that there would be enough testing in this country and then obviously in Toronto and Canada as part of it, North America, that, that he had confidence there would be enough testing that the NBA wouldn't be um, – They'd feel comfortable with going forward and, and, and I think guys, those two facts tell you, uh, th- those are two hurdles, I think, for the league. And I'm not saying they're going to come back, but, but, but that's, uh, I, I think that's a, a big part of the equation.
1: Yeah. The testing story you had, yes, uh, you had on Friday, Woj. I thought it was so interesting because of the language and the wording, right? Uh, your report from just a week earlier had talked about how they wanted to wait for public testing, right? Didn't want to gobble up public test. I think was one of the sentences you had. Uh, the memo on Friday was very different, right? Frontline healthcare workers—that is a huge distinction on whether tests are available in someone's community, because testing in this country, according to the people testifying in Congress, just isn't where it needs to be. I, I looked this up. Um, right now, the U.S., as we record this podcast, is testing 264,000 people a day. Uh, and there was a congressional testimony just this week saying that it needs to be at about half a million a day, uh, three or four million a week, uh, to have the kind of public testing that these experts who are testifying recommend. And the idea of getting from that A to that B, uh, there isn't a path for that right now. So when Adam had been hinging... Uh, a return for the NBA on public universal testing, it was hard to see when or where that would happen. And if the switch has been to, we can do this once there is frontline healthcare worker testing, and then we feel comfortable that we can have some private testing. That's a different, that's a different bar,
0: right? Absolutely. And uh, Bobby, to that point too, with the league, I, I think the testing is that one issue that Rachel's detailing but the other question is going to be about coming back or, or certainly one of the major questions is going to be, what is the risk that the league, the players are willing to take? What is the risk they're willing to live with? And, and Adam Silver said it on the call with the players yesterday, not just the risk of living in isolation, but the, li- the risk of living day to day. And the players and the league and the owners have to answer that question before they come back. And and that's probably the greatest, that's probably the most difficult question of all, uh, because will the risk be any different in July than it's going to be in December? If there's a second wave, if the opening up of states results in spikes and if the numbers don't go down, will the risk be different then? And at some point you say, as a business, how are we going to go forward here?
2: Well, and I, and I think the one thing that the commissioner said too on the call um, regarding risk is, well, there's also that mental risk, right? Like, if you don't go back to work, there is the mental side of it where, uh, people are going to lose jobs. Uh, the economy will continue to, to suffer here. And the big thing that we've, we've talked about all week is tolerance, right? What is our tolerance going to be to, um, to the risk factor here where, if a player knows that, um, you know, one of my teammates or possibly two of my teammates are we going to want to proceed uh, ahead? Uh, I, I think the big thing was that we kind of learned from the call was that what happens if a player tests positive? Does that mean that we shut down and fall together here? And I think the if, if there's testing in place, I don't. Um, I think the player will be quarantined, but I don't think you know we shut down as a league in, in, in total here where. Uh, things can go on. A uh, big, big question will be what happens if there's a domino effect here, right? What happens if we get three players or four players? What happens if, God forbid, we get to an NBA Finals and LeBron James, right? Like, you know, all those different scenarios, I think we all have to factor uh, factor in. But as as both of you said, testing is the big part here. Get that issue solved. Um, and then we can kind of move forward. But I think the, the one thing that if you're looking from a hope standpoint from the call was at least we have a little bit of structure that we know what's going to happen. Right. We know it might take three to six weeks to get tra- a training camp together. We know that the league is willing to play into September. We know that December is a possibility there. So it, from from where we were two weeks ago, we didn't really have any information. Right. At least that we can take from that call.
1: Well, the protocol that that Silver was telling the players was the idea that if a player does test positive, that that player would be removed, right, would be quarantined, and that possibly they would have a one- or two-day stoppage to just test everyone more thoroughly again and make sure that it wasn't spreading, but then they would resume play. And I assume, Bobby, in your scenario, that player is kind of treated as if he has an injury, right? I mean, you can have a quirk injury. We saw it in the NBA finals with several members of the Golden State Warriors, and they are plucked and removed from the finals or whatever stage of the playoffs they're at. But again, they're talking about, and he was saying on the call that he expected a level of testing in the coming months that, just as a private citizen reading the New York Times and the Washington Post, I have not seen yet the indications for it. And obviously, the NBA uh, has access to medical experts that we don't have. But he was talking about testing people on a daily or everyday basis. That's not just the number of test kits that you might be able to buy from a private source. so you're not taking away from the public. But then those test kits have to be processed. Right now, uh, a lot of the coronavirus tests that people are using are those nasal swabs, and those take, at best, several hours to get processed. So are you letting those players then go to their morning shoot-around or morning practice when they wake up and get tested in the morning? Um There's certainly hope for an antigen, a finger prick test. Um, but again, that's a level of testing that Adam seemed to be talking about as if they were expecting in the co- coming months. Um, I certainly hope that's true. But that's a big thing to be hinging all of this on.
0: And, and as much as anything, this is a – Listen, there there's an ethical question here. Um there's a a practical question here with the tests. And then there's a PR question of what is the PR? What is the what are the optics for the league? If there are still people in places who are struggling to get tests and the league is just (laughs) plowing through those day after day in some isolated bubble. Um and not just and remember, it's not just the players, it's the staffs. It's if they're in an isolated, hypothetically, if they're in Walt Disney World or if they're in Orlando or they're in Vegas, you would have hotel workers and food services workers and uh, tech people and any all the people it would take to, to put on the NBA, they'd all have to be tested. And And I'd reported back a couple of weeks ago, I don't know, maybe it was a couple of months ago, I lose track of whatever, uh, anything's happened, but 15,000 tests is what the league estimated it would take in an isolated environment to finish this season. And they know they can easily get those tests. They have many manufacturers who could provide it for them. That's not the issue. And, and so, um, yeah, that, that's, that, that's a, a big, big hurdle for the league.
1: Well, that's again, that's the PR angle that I was really interested in your reporting on Friday, because when you made the initial report, it was, we won't, we would not feel comfortable testing our players with that regularity if the public doesn't have access to tests. And then on Friday, it was, well, if frontline healthcare workers don't have ac- access to tests, that's a different bar and standard. And I'm not saying one is right or wrong, but they've created clearly- a far lower standard.
0: It's a far lower bar. Far
1: right. Lower. Right. So that, that maybe indicates that they feel PR wise oh, if that's the bar that will get us you know, smoothly through the PR hump as opposed to having to wait for enti- you know, the entire country to publicly well, be tested.
0: But, but let's also, to be fair, when you think of the numbers of people right now that a team would be testing, it's very low. At the most, it could be 15 players, and we don't have 15 players going in every facility. And we know they can only have four coaches in a facility at any one time. So any one team in one region of the country might in a given day or a week, it's not very many tests. And so that's purely optical Mm -hmm. PR.
2: Absolutely. Well, and the one thing too um, regarding testing and and if, you know, if we do see players test positive um, in a playoff series, uh, the one thing that when you talk to teams that are pushing for is to now have two-way contracts available, the guys who are on two-way contracts are part of your roster for the playoffs which is not a um what is which is not a possibility right now so you know your roster goes from 15 to 17 so at least it gives you you know two more bodies um you know when you if maybe if you get three guys that god forsake are test positive here and that's something that teams i know are going to push for for 2020 2021. not the two ways but can we expand the rosters from 15 to 17 and also have two-way players here where it's, it's players on a one-year non-guaranteed contract. Um, it's almost like an, an, it's an insurance policy here because as the commissioner said, like this, the virus, before we have a um, vaccine, the virus is going to be here, right? So when we get playing in uh, November or December, the risk is going to be there also, um, comparable to what it's going to be in, in June or July. With real guidance and the right
0: coach, NBA teams go from good to great. Just like real help from your State Farm agent can make all the difference in protecting what matters most. And let's talk about one of the great coaches in NBA history, maybe one of the most impactful on those who played for him, uh, those who became coaches from his inspiration, Red Holtzman, the legendary New York Knicks coach who 50 years ago this week 1970, helped the Knicks beat the Lakers in the NBA Finals for their first championship. He'd go on to win another championship in 1973. And you look at Phil Jackson, who, as much as anything, a disciple of Red Holtzman, to go on and, and take a lot of what Red preached, which was really giving your players great autonomy, letting them figure out problems amongst each other, and and building real relationships with his players. There's no Phil Jackson without Red Holtzman. And and longtime Knicks fans will tell you, it's been done in New York. It can be done in New York. And no one did it better than the great Red Holtzman. So talk to a State Farm agent today about combining your home and auto insurance and get a teammate who can help guide you through whatever life throws your way. When you want the real deal like a good neighbor, State Farm is there let's start to kind of play out what a return to play might look like this season. Adam Silver told the players that he would like to have not a shortened postseason, not a best of five in the first round or a best of three, then a best of five and two seven game series that he wants to have a, a, a full, full playoff scenario, best of seven series, ideally. And to do that, Listen, there's only so many days they're going to have to play, and so if you want to, you know, try to put as much legitimacy as you can on a champion, then on the front end, which would be how many regular season games might be played, or a play-in tournament. And when you talk to teams, there's been, uh, and, and and Adam didn't rule it out with the players on the call. Uh, the idea of some kind of a play in tournament, because right now the the eight seeds in each conference are, are you're not going to catch either of them, especially if you're only going to play uh, a few games before the playoffs. The eighth seeds not going to get caught, but you've got to incentivize for these other teams to go through a training camp to put players out on the floor. I've had a number of teams tell me who are in that uh, nine to 10, 11 range they're going to be more motivated to play their key players. If there's a chance they can get into the postseason, and And I think that's where we're going to start to see a lot of people aren't going to get, it's not going to feel fair. It's not going to be what they want. And it's going to be on Adam Silver to sell everybody, which is what he's been trying to do through this on the greater good of the NBA. Like for owners, this may not be good financially for you to have to play these games because you're not getting gate receipts. Your team's not in the playoffs and, and you guys in the seven and eight seeds, if you're Dallas and you're Memphis, you have you have thoroughly outplayed those teams who are outside the playoff picture. And it doesn't feel fair that you could lose it in just a couple of days, and they could gain it in a couple of days. But those are all the questions like that. Again, it kind of gets back to the idea of the best of a lot of bad ideas.
1: I think though it's an easier sell to teams in that eight seed who feel like, man, we just deserve this outright. Uh, then it would be if you were talking about the top seeds. Because realistically, there's only one year in NBA history, right, where the eighth seed has made the finals. So the idea that, oh, if you're in the eighth seed, and you could have had the eighth seed this year, but you're going to get knocked out from a play tournament, and that's not fair, and you would have been in an eight versus one you probably, I mean, the statistical likelihood is, to bet, no matter how plucky everyone is in that eighth seed, they would have been eliminated after the first round. So even though it is, quote, not fair, maybe this year to have a play-in tournament when you would have won that eighth seed outright, you're talking about give or take of one playoff round as opposed to give or take of someone's chances of a title. I feel like maybe that's an easier sell to teams, but I don't know.
0: I would say the counter to that, Rachel, is if you looked at, let's use the example of the of the insay basketball tournament. Right. Like, the 11th or 12th seed knows they're not going to the Final Four or they're fairly confident they're not. But if you say, hey, we're not going to put you in the NCAA, right. you're not going to get. <laughs>
2: but,
0: I, but I do think that's – but it gets – but but you're right, Rachel, they're not going to win. And it is, in the end, who cares? But I do think that's what's going to come back to this over and over. There are going to be uh, a lot of scenarios, and this is going to be Adam Silver's job with the owners, with his players – He's got to sell them on the greater good and the importance of creating some interest. Listen, the play-in tournament was probably coming in next season anyway. Uh, the owners were getting ready to vote on it. That was the one, you know, some of the players, Chris Paul was not really, I talked to Chris Paul about that a couple of years ago when the idea was first coming up. He didn't love the idea, and there are a lot of players who felt that way. Hey, we earned our way in the playoffs. We did it over 82 games. Like, somebody shouldn't be able to jump in. the league saying hey, we, we've got we've to drive more interest in this thing, and driving interest will be a big part of any return to play.
2: Well, and I think, that, you know, what the, and Rachel, the interesting thing is, you know, yes, there will be a training camp of three to five weeks or uh, somewhere a month maybe, but what happens from training camp to the playoffs, right? What is that in-between layer? If you are the Lakers, for example, are you going to ha- allow them to just jump into the playoffs? Is is there going to be some games before that? Um, is it fair to them that they will play the winner of um, Memphis versus New Orleans, where those teams have already played games before? Mm-hmm. Before you actually play that series here, so I think that's going to be you know, do we? Is there a you know, do you bring back all thirty teams to play four regular season games at the end of um you know at the end of uh, at the end of the regular season here? Um, I think that's going to be the big part as far as is that, you know, that next layer, that in-between phase.
1: Well, the stakes are so different for every team right now. This is, to me, some of the most disparate situations we've seen among NBA teams in a really long time. And was and to your point, teams that are completely out of it, like the Warriors, mathematically, statistically out of it. We've discussed this a lot in the past few weeks. They have almost no incentive to play other than for that quote greater good being good team players, that kind of thing. Whereas a team like the Lakers, you mentioned Bobby has completely wildly different incentive, not just because they're title contenders, not just because of the marketing and their deal with their local TV provider or if they hit that 70 games mark and all of that stuff, but because they're one of their star players is at an age where this season is more valuable to him. The next season, right? He's going to be 36 next season. So not as valuable a season. So to them, their incentive to get something this summer is maybe even greater than say the Bucks, right? Who hopefully, or they're hoping have Yana Antetokounmpo for years to come. So it, it, the sentence woes you had in your story a week ago where you cited a general manager saying it's hard to lead by consensus in a crisis has stuck with me ever since that article because I think that it is one of the biggest challenges facing the NBA. And Bobby, you can give us insight into this. In my mind, I'm imagining every front office, every owner having wildly different needs and wants here and pushing for wildly different things. And that's got to be true on the player side as well.
2: Well, and if you're right. I mean, and it's interesting because uh, Joe Tsai, the owner of the Nets, was on a uh, a Stanford business conference with some students. And he, and he basically said it, you know, he didn't want to fully com- say, but he said, hey, you know, you talk to all thirty owners, everyone has a difference of opinion as far as the top eight want to start playing. Well, maybe the teams that are in that thirteen to fifteen seed want to get going for you know, focus on the draft. It's that's where they're gearing towards. So you're right, but I do think um, you know, and, and Bob Myers came out yesterday I believe yesterday or the day before and said it like said, Hey, we will be good partners here, right? Like we if you tell us to come back and play three, four or four regular season games or fifteen regular season games. We will be back. We will, we will be there.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think for the players that listen, there's financial incentive for every player to play as many regular season games as they can to, to get their money because whatever games are canceled, the, you know, the NBA is going to invoke the, the force majeure, which basically allows the teams to take back about 1% of your salary for each game missed. And listen, I've heard discussions among teams of should we have a scenario where we just do a play-in tournament of 7 through 12, and the rest of the teams, we tell them to pack it in. We tell Atlanta, Golden State, Cleveland, you guys are done, and we'll share the money. We'll, they would have to create some share of revenue to compensate. Like I don't imagine that happening, and I don't know that Adam Silver's even considering it, but I know in front offices, when people are bouncing around ideas, that's been a conversation.
1: This tolerance of risk thing, too, that Bobby mentioned, I think, is the other sort of third rail sideline issue of getting players at a point where they are comfortable with the level of risk involved. And it's such an interesting thing for the entire country, right? It's not just NBA players. Every time you drive down a highway, you are taking a risk. And obviously, I'm not equating highway deaths with coronavirus because highway deaths are not contagious. But it is an example of assumed risk in this country. If we just shut down the highway system in this country, tens of thousands of lives would be saved. People would never drive more than forty over 45 miles an hour. But we have decided over time as a country, there is an acceptable tolerance of risk. And you are trusting the people driving, speedling, hurtling towards you the other way. And we saw so tragically, Monty Williams, a few years ago, his wife died because there was a distracted driver driving at 60 miles an hour the other direction and killed her. And Mark Cuban came out this week and he said, players have to decide with coronavirus, who are they trusting with their lives? Are they trusting the person at the hotel? Are they trusting? Who do you trust with your life? That is the question. And it is, it's very dramatic for Mark to talk that way. And it feels very dramatic as we sit here and try to make these decisions from scratch. Nobody told the entire country to decide from scratch in one month, okay, how many people do we feel comfortable with dying on a highway this month? No one ever had to make that decision. It just kind of evolved. And that's how we have a comfort level with risk. We are being asked to make that decision all at once here with coronavirus. And I think that is very difficult for people to do, even if they are regularly taking other risks in their daily life, it's hard to unilaterally say, great, we're fine with X many thousand people dying. It should be hard. That is that that's not a natural thing to want to do. And yet there is some element of that equation, as Adam stressed on the call with the players. There is no zero risk situation here. The only way to have a zero risk situation is to just shut down until there's a vaccine. And that's just not something they're looking at right now.
0: And, and and Adam Silver talking to the players yesterday, there's going to have to be uh, a lot of cooperation, trust. There's going to be some I think some very difficult negotiations that will go on because they've got to collectively bargain almost any of the changes that would come, whether it's going to a one or two site bubble uh, or pushing the start of next season to December, regardless of whether they play or not. Uh, any number of things have to be agreed upon with the players. And then there's going to be like real financial realities. And Bobby, uh, paint the picture for people of what free agency is going to look like, um, how the salary cap is going to impact what, and not just free agency, how it's going to impact the draft going into next season and, and, and what players can expect to see.
2: Well, I mean, I think the you know the commissioner painted it out where it's basically going to be two years of negotiating a CBA crammed into two months, right? <laughs> I mean, that's where we're facing. Amazing. I mean, that's the reality of it, and it's you know, so you look at it a lot of different ways, uh, and I think the big question is, what is the salary cap going to be? What is the luxury tax going to be? And in the equal, the easy answer would be, yeah. If If we go by the letter of the CBA, the salary cap and the luxury tax is going to crash, right? It's going to go from a projected $115 million uh, cap to $90, $95 million, uh, the luxury tax. And and teams, instead of four teams in a luxury tax, we're going to have 20 teams in here. So that is going to be a big thing to work on because the commissioner said, BRI, uh, 40% comes from... Uh, fans gate receipts here. So, you know, how the league projects the salary cap is you take the BRI from the current season. So this would be 19, the the, the,
0: the BRI is the basketball related income is, which is what that's what the owners and players share in a, in a given uh, financial year.
2: Right. Yeah. And and for this year, we were, uh, the league was projecting BRI to be at $8 billion. Okay. We are projecting that potentially could be at $6 billion. So there's a $2 billion loss. So it, by the letter of the CBA, you would take that six billion and you would project it out, and that would give you your indicator for 2020-21. And that number comes in at like 94 million. It's comparable to 2016-17, three or four um, years ago. But that can't be right because you need, as the commissioner said, like we need a competitive balance here. So all those teams would cap space, there would be nobody. Um, you know, luxury tax teams would be swimming in, in finances. And then what happens when we do get some type of sense of normalcy two years from now or even a year from now? Does the salary cap all of a sudden go from 95 to 125 or 130? And now we're looking at the summer of 2006. Right. And you get another yeah. cap so, spike,
1: which, which clearly was not, you know, did not help competitive balance in the NBA.
2: Yeah. So there is, so when he says the system wasn't set up for the mechanics, that's why the system wasn't set because You have revenue taking start a a decline steep, and then all of a sudden, a year and a half from now. I mean, eventually, we're going to eventually we're going to get back to hopefully a healthy business model, right? But it's probably going to be a year and a half from now. And you know, you talk to teams, and they are. Well, first of all, the league and the PA have not negotiated anything yet. I mean, I think they they want to get through this, right? We got to get set the schedule, figure out if we're going to play. But you talk to teams and you campus the league, there are a lot of different things teams would want. How do we address it? Maybe if the salary cap is $95 million, maybe now player salaries are a percentage of the salary cap. So I guess I'll give you an example, and this is what one team said to me. If you look at Golden State and a player like Steph Curry next year is going to make $42 million. Well, Steph Curry would still make $42 million, But maybe for salary cap purposes, salary is $35 million, right? And we decrease and the numbers go down where, yes, the Warriors would still be in a luxury tax, but that it would be comparable to what the cap would have been. Um, And I think a lot of things like that are going to be thrown around. I mean, you talk to teams saying, you know, maybe we get rid of the luxury tax. Maybe we get it rid of, maybe we go back to a dollar for dollar, Um, I think the one word we're going to hear is going to be thrown around is the infamous cap smoothing. Right. Remember that (laughs) in 2016 when nobody wanted a part of that cap smoothing is going to be on the table here. So um, there is so much negotiations that are going to have to take place. I think it would be premature to say, hey, the cap's going to be 100 million dollars because we're going to lose two billion. I don't know if that's going to be the case. Um, One thing I do think will happen is that. We might see player escrow, you know, players get 10% taken out of their pay, um, you know, at the course of the beginning of the year. I think that number is going to go up potentially to 25% of escrow. And that's going to be kind of that buffer, that insurance policy for owners that in case revenue does take a, take a steep decline.
0: Hey guys, Scott's turf builder, Triple Action, has acquired the secret to building a thicker, greener lawn. In return, they have taken all of the hard work out of the picture to give you more time to do nothing extra. People don't realize that it's easy to get the lawn of their dreams by simply feeding their lawn a few times throughout the year. Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action kills weeds, prevents crabgrass, and feeds to build thick green lawns. With Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action, you can finally get the lawn you've always dreamt of. Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action will give your yard the nourishment it needs to help your weak, thin lawn recover. When you feed with Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action multiple times throughout the year, your grass will be greener, stronger, and more resilient. Pick up a bag today. This is a Scott's Yard. Also, Scott's No Quibble Money Back Guarantee states, if you're not satisfied, you get your money back. This is a Scott's Yard.
1: Well, can I ask you in your your reporting and talking to all the people that you do, does the timing jive to you? Because one thing that Adam said to the players on the call was, we don't have to make a decision in May. We don't even have to make a decision by early June. And I'm listening to Bobby run through all of these gymnastics, and I think he's very kindly simplifying them for the purpose of this discussion. But that we're talking about what sounds in my head like, yes, Bobby, two months of negotiations at best. Right. And don't they have to have those negotiations done by the time they bring everyone back? So in addition to figuring out the testing issue, figuring out where they're going to play, I can't wait to see which players would rather be in Orlando near Disney World which rather uh, compared to which players would rather be in Las Vegas. That's going to be a humorous sidebar, um, <laughs> depending on what your vice is uh, and uh, all the other complications that go with figuring this out. If Adam Silver says, "Hey, we don't have to make a decision now. We don't even have to make a decision in early June," how do they see the timing working out, Woj, so they actually get a season in before Thanksgiving?
0: Well, th- that's it. Their, their willingness uh, a few weeks ago or a month ago, you know, I had been reporting that they their hope was to have it wrapped up by Labor Day weekend. That they wanted to be done before football started. If 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 indeed football is going to start, then. Uh, but they have become, and, and that was wishful. It wasn't a hard deadline. Sure. And they, they're willing to go, especially because there's such momentum towards starting the season mid to late December, regardless of whether they play or not mm-hmm. pushing that back and then getting on a calendar that takes next season into August or however long it would have to be. That gives them more uh, leeway here to delay and hold off and, uh, you know, the players association told their players when they agreed to, um, basically almost a second escrow of with the force majeure, basically they were going to take a little withhold players money so that if games are canceled, which we, we know there'll be regular, se- some regular season games will be canceled and the owners take that money back that the players didn't have to give it all at once that they told the players then we will know. We believe we will know by June 15th. Huh. Okay. And, and that was a little bit of an estimate. And I think that's, I can't imagine a scenario where we're in the middle of June and they haven't said, guys, we're, we're, we're going to open up. Cause if, if you decided on June 1st to open up training camps, you're not opening them up on June 2nd. And so it's going to take a little time to get them open. How long are they going to be? I think they're not going to be six weeks. They're not going to be five weeks. And I think Adam put it at three to six weeks. I think three is the minimum. Chris Paul's talked about at least three weeks. Uh but i I would be shocked if it was more than that. I think what they'll end up saying is, "Hey, we opened up the facilities. You guys are getting back into it. That counts for something right and, and so you, but but, Rachel, you're right. like I think they can get the season going to finish and resume it, right, Bobby, without needing to have next year's salary cap because you pushed it back to the autumn uh, let's let's say the the draft and free agency are going to be at that point October. And we know we're not I mean, they haven't canceled the draft on June 25th yet. Uh, it's coming. They're going to push that date back uh, by all indications. And so um, and if you're pushing a draft back, you're putting free agency back with that. So it, it buys them time. Right, Bobby?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I think when you look at it, you know, I mean, of, of course, the cleanest way to look at it, right, would be. Yeah, we get through all oh, the finals would be mid-August, right? The draft's the end of August. We're basically just pushing. And then September 1st, free agency starts, right? We're just, we basically push the calendar back. Switch the draft to year. free agency.
1: Switch yeah. the draft to free agency. I'm going to have like a pick a sign uh, on a picket line. <laughs> We're redoing yeah, that Bobby. Could, we should redo that well, too.
2: Yeah. Hey, I'm all for it. Put the draft, uh, July, uh, September 8th and then start free agency right after. But, but I think what you could also look at it too is that you know, you could use that September, October months to negotiate as far as what this is going to look like CBA wise. Because remember back in 2011 when we had that lockout, the lockout was lifted on December 9th, I believe. And we had 10 days of free agency, right? Or 11 days of free agency with a new, with a new CBA. And then the game started like December 23rd. We had two preseason games and the game started. So you could potentially do that knowing that Hey, um, it's a, there's not many teams with cap space already. Um, It's an average free agent class at best. Um, You know, your window, free agency starts December 1st, and that leads you up into training camp. Um, You'll be filling out your roster. You start training camp. I think, I think the interesting thing, Rachel, is that you have so many teams, you know, you'll have 14 teams that won't have done anything, right? Probably like for nine months. So you go from mid March to mid early December of not doing anything at all. So do you bring players back for a voluntary mini camp? Do you go the NFL route? So I think there's so many different things that are going to have to work out. Um but yeah, just because the season ends in Labor Day doesn't I don't think it guarantees you that you start um free agency two weeks later right. because there are so many issues here.
1: Do you think? Do you guys think that if they do start next season on Christmas Day, let's just say they would go all the way through August and try to have the 82-game season? Or like with so many other things we're discussing, this is an opportunity for them to experiment with a shortened calendar?
0: No, I think, Rachel, I think there is more than ever a movement to play 82 games next year because what a shortened schedule does to you is it means less revenue. Sure. They're going to play every game they can. I think the pushing it back into December gives them more than anything a chance to have more dates in the year with a better chance of having fans in arenas. That if you're starting that season in October, normally, even if this season got canceled or the rest of it got canceled, you have. I think the feeling is we're going to have less of a chance to have fans in arenas in October. Now, maybe who knows whether we could even have them in December. But but by the time you get to February and March, uh, where you've played fewer games maybe by then there's
1: still 60 uh, games left on the schedule. You could have fans that
0: you're starting to get fans in. And, and I think that's a big, this and this, that's the biggest part of this. I hear less concern among teams and owners about what happens to the rest of this year. Take away the two or three or four teams who think they can win a championship, but most of the league. and, And I think even the players association is really focused on what does next year look like? Because next year, if you are limited in certain what, what if there's arenas where you, in, in jurisdictions where they say, we're not going to have these gatherings yet. We're not having fans, but teams in other markets. Yeah, yeah we can, we're going to fill our arena. You're going to wear a mask. You're going to, whatever it's going to look like. The disparity in revenue, how does that team compete where the owner owns the arena? He not only is he have not fan, he doesn't have fans for his basketball team. He doesn't have fans for his NHL team or he has Concerts, no concert yeah. dates in his arena. And that guy's going to compete with Steve Ballmer or he's going to compete with the Lakers or he's going to compete with Jim Dolan financially, probably not. And I think that's the biggest concern for the league is trying to figure out what it looks like, because that will change. And and Adam Silver said this on the call yesterday that the CBA was not meant to withstand a pandemic. It's a it's a document. It's an agreement because this is a balance of of revenue that is shared among the players and owners and then all hell breaks loose in the league next season, whether, and it doesn't have to be all the arenas empty. All you need are seven or eight teams who can't put people in the arena and, 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 or or less than that. And what, how does the league make provisions for that?
1: There's also the factor that they've had declining television ratings for the last year before any of this happened, right? Right. So and, and there was a lot of talk about how do you stem the tide of of younger fans who are going to other sports or video games or any of that stuff. And Adam talked about this on the call yesterday with the players about, you know, how do we engage fans with different styles of broadcasts or things like that. Um that's sort of a factor we're not addressing with do they play out the season or don't they play out the season or what does it look like because there's so much logistical and health and safety and more pressing issues. But once you peel back to fan the layer of fan interest, um, if they go this entire calendar year and don't play any more basketball and then start just at Christmas and in the meantime, You do have other sports because they are sports that involve less contact. NASCAR is starting this week because it's cars, drivers in their cars. And yes, there's pickers, but there's, there's a much different level of contact. Golf is starting in two weeks because it's a guy 2000 yards from his closest competitor. You have other sports that might be taking bites out of their market share. And then when you talk about fans coming back or other streams of revenue happening, once even you get to 2021, the assumption That the public interest is going to be there at the same level when making those calculations using 2019 and 2020 and 2018 numbers of, oh, this is what we expect our fan revenue to be. I wonder if there is thought or calculation of, Hey, one of the factors we have to think about when making the decision about finishing out the rest of the 2020 season is just keeping up that fan engagement to the point where you can even have fans in the building yet, because you need fans to still, even once the permission is there, you need them to buy tickets and go sit in the building.
0: Well, you bring up a number of great points there, Rachel. Number one, like look at the TV ratings and why they were down this season. And we can all point to a number of reasons, you know, like, you know, the was a 25, 15 to 25, the numbers, you know, severely drop. Well, we know those those fans are consuming the NBA, but they're not watching it on television the way the three of us might watch it at night. They're on their phones. I see it in my own house. Like they're going to watch it on their phone. They're going to watch it uh sh- streaming. And so the NBA will account for that. And, and the broadcast hours will account for that in the next TV deal. Wherever the viewers are is what they'll monetize. That's not, to me, a concern. But what was a concern this year, right, was was injuries to star players. Now, Steph Curry got injured because he landed on his hand and broke his hand. There's nothing you could do about that. But what about in a shortened preseason? And I know they're thinking about this. If you really want to hurt TV ratings next year, let's rush everybody back this season. Let's get key players injured. And now have to hold them off, uh, have their, their starts pushed back. I mean, guys, Kevin Durant's not coming back to the Nets this year. That's not happening. If they play, they're not playing him. And, um, but, but Rachel, the, the idea about, and, and Adam Silver talked about it on the call. And I think we've reported about this. This is a chance for the NBA to, I think, reshape how it looks on television. And if, and even in a bubble environment where there's no fans and you've got to, They've talked about creating unique camera angles and sight lines. You spend a lot of time thinking about how this sport looks on TV and how you deliver it to an audience. What would you do, Rachel, if you could innovate with how the game experience is brought to fans. What what would you like to see change? Well, this is
1: something you'd have to get buy in from from the players. But maybe an economic crisis situation would spur more of it. Um, one of the directions that people like your teenage kids, would, um are they both still teenagers? Only one of them still a teenager. I'm not sure.
0: No, no,
2: <laughs> I don't, one, I don't want to pre-
1: prematurely <laughs> age your children. But um, but um, one of the things that they're so used to in their world is almost 24-7 access to the athletes and stars and celebrities that they like, right? In the palm of their hand in their home, Kim Kardashian or LeBron James have basically given them a seat at their dinner table, right? LeBron James, Taco Tuesday, come hang out with my daughter while she dances on TikTok or whatever it is. Um, That intimacy with celebrities and players is something that people of that age kind of expect, but we're not delivering in our TV broadcast. Most players don't want to be miked during a game. It's a battle, right? And you can only maybe mic the coach or anything like that. In-game interviews, we certainly see the Greg Popoviches of the world dismiss. And players used to do uh, interviews after halftime. We used to have that interview after halftime going to the locker room. And some local broadcasts still have deals where they do that, but that's largely fallen away from national broadcasts. and. Uh, I don't know if more access to players with camera angles, like a bench cam, right? What are guys talking about or doing on the bench? Um, what are guys? <laughs> I'd, right? I'd watch well, that. But, but, but yes, that's the point, right? You would. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I know I would yeah. too, right? And, and having guys mic'd more and having that access and locker room. The, what's the locker room cam, right? We see this at the uh, March Madness tournament and certainly we get a little bits of it in the NBA. Sometimes they'll have a video. That goes through, by the way, seven sensors before it gets to TV Um, and the NBA. And that's another layer that would have to be more comfortable. Um, Even those mic'd up segments that we have on broadcast right now, um, I can tell you from being a sideline reporter that we hear those mics and the the fact that they then go through there's an NBA person for works for the league in the truck. Watching those and listening to those as they come in and being the arbiter of, okay, are we comfortable? Would our coaches be comfortable? Would our teams be comfortable with this being on the air? And right now the bar is extremely high. Most of the stuff is deemed not acceptable. And that is why on TV you mostly get like, all right guys, hurry up. We got to be tough here because you're not getting. Right.
0: Get back, get back, get right, back and transition. Right. Is the Exciting
1: most thing you salacious get, thing right? you might get. Um, yeah. I, I think when you ask me what would I recommend or what do I think, I think that there is a level. I, I think the players in the league, if they really want to get to what will interest people of a certain age who on their phones have access to I'm sitting at the dinner table with LeBron James. I think that that's it. And I don't know how comfortable when they're talking about, oh, we're going to put new camera angles in. They tried an overhead, that overhead side shot this year with one of the broadcasts. That's not what people are looking for. They're not looking for like, oh, what's another Skycam? I think that my opinion is that viewers want a level of intimacy that they're already getting in so many other places. And I think that will be an adjustment for the NBA players and for the league itself on being comfortable with allowing that. But to me, that is my opinion of where it would have to go.
0: Bobby, all the things Rachel described there and allowing changes of that nature, where, what pockets of the league would you imagine would have the greatest resistance to, to what Rachel described might better appeal to a younger fan base?
2: Well, you know what? I mean, I think the situation we're in right now where I think everything's on the table, right? Like, I think the day and age of, you know, like, I think we, we're forced to change, right? This pandemic has made is forcing us to change and, and forcing us to get out of our comfort level. And I think, I think Rachel hit, hits home. And I think, you know, when you look back on what just happened with the NFL draft, right? The NFL draft, the three days made you feel like you were part of the front office of the New York Jets because you were inside his, whether you office. wanted
1: to be part you of were, that front office um, or not, Bobby,
2: <laughs> uh, for for that, I <laughs> But it, but it, and it, and you know, and then you have, um, you know, like there was a great video of, of John Harbaugh and their general manager, right? Like you felt like you were part of that. And I think that's what the viewer is going to want to feel like, um, whether it be the playoffs or whether it be the draft, um, whether it be you drive along with LeBron James to a game, right? In the car. I mean, who knows if it's going to be a bubble scenario, but you are part of, um, you are part of their life to, to an extent here. And I think, I think when you look at it from the league and the players association, I think everything is going to be on the table. And I think that, that includes potentially the draft, right? Like, you know, if there is a window to switch the draft to, um, to after free agency starts, like here's your window to go do it. Um, here's to do it so you won't have to wait three weeks for an Anthony Davis trade. And the night of the draft, we've got six guys with hats on that aren't even on the same team, right? Like, so if you're going to do it now, um, it's almost like when you get hired at a job, right? When you get hired at a job, you have carte blanche who you want to bring with you and how much money you want to spend. You want a new desk, you'll get it. But two years from now, you're not going to be able to go buy that new desk because maybe your your budget's smaller. But um, I think everything, um, yeah, there'll be some resistance, but I think everything will be on the, on the table right now.
0: Yeah. And I think that Adam Silver's power is immense in this scenario, partly because of his role as commissioner and the weight, the position carries, but also because I feel as though while Different constituencies can disagree or feel like, ah, Adam is favoring this group over my group. In the end, I do sense this, that there is a lot of trust in him and belief in him that ultimately, if you just tell us what the plan is, if you tell us what direction we're going, we will fall into line within, within most margins. Like we're going to fall into line. And I think it's going to come to a point where he's going to come to everybody and say on a number of levels, what the rest of this season looks like, how you're going to deal with the schedule in the future, television, uh, any number of, and, and then ultimately safety. What that that there's got to be a trust that you you're putting your health in the hands of um, of a team, and, and and vice versa. And I think Adam's role in this, in the end, is is going to be immense.
2: Well, too, I mean, when you listen to him on the call with the players, like he made the the players feel part of it. And, and he said it, this is not going to be an Adam Silver decision. This is not going to be a Michelle Roberts decision. It's going to be a decision for all of us, you know, all 30 teams, all 30 owners, all 400 plus, uh, plus players here.
1: But don't you think, I think, and that gets back to that line in, in Woj's story from last week of it's hard to govern by consensus in a crisis. I've thought a lot over the last month about whether and how the NBA would be acting differently in a David Stern scenario versus an Adam scenario because we know that they operate so differently and that Adam clearly in some of the situations that have come up in recent years, we've made the point and and all three of us loved David and had had a long history with him. So this is not a knock. It's just times change Um that Adam Silver is more suited to some of the challenges that have come up in the last five years. And gee, the NBA, um, you know, needed David Stern in the David Stern era and they've needed Adam Silver in the Adam Silver era. I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know if this is a summer, a year where David's method of governance maybe would have been more effective, less effective. I think it certainly would be different. He's less of a consensus guy, right? So I'm, I'm just, it's been an interesting thought exercise for me.
0: Yeah. Th- their styles are different, Rachel, but I think there's, there's a part of Adam that has a vision for what he wants. And, and the one thing he does have. And I know this firsthand and you talk to people around the league who have relationships with them and they're not necessarily all the people in the highest, most prominent positions. I mean, I could tell you people who are able to get access mm-hmm. to them or he might reach out to them where you go, you know, he's, you know, he listen, he's going to listen to a lot of people, but in the end, I, I know there's a feeling in organizations and ownerships that in the end, no matter the kind of input they give that Adam Silver and and the deputies around him, um, they're going to decide it in the end. But he does have an ability to go out. And I I think the fact that he had the relationships around the league, whether it's owners, players, player agents, general managers, and team presidents and business side, when you have all those relationships going into a crisis like this, I think it's easier to manage it than when you're all of a sudden you're running around trying to build sure. some of those because you can't it's impossible to do that at this point. So I do think that's that's been helpful to to him in the league. No, and I mean his
1: ability to connect is is such a key part of how he's been a commissioner and again different from David who would sort of walk into a room whereas <laughs> Adam, you know, stops along the way and I think that is going to be so critical uh, to get buy-in from all those different constituencies. And it also speaks to one of the strengths of the NBA as a whole is that uh, I joke sometimes with some of the NBA staff members that we all knew each other when we were in our early twenties, because nobody leaves. It's like the hotel California in the NBA, <laughs> like it, it's the same it is largely the same people sort of matriculating through the system. And uh, at the NBA finals for a long time, the photo on your credential was the first photo they took for your first NBA finals and they never updated it. And it was hysterical to walk around and see that not just for one or two people, but for so many people, it was a photo from 15, 18 years ago. And, I think that that's the way the NBA works. The the cliche of the NBA family um, is actually true in a lot of ways. These people have worked together and been part of each other's lives for kids being born and and parents and and all kinds of other family events. Um, I I think that's going to pay off in this sort of circumstances. And we see it now with Mark Tatum under Adam, right? Mark has all those relationships that he's building the way Adam did when Adam was David's deputy. And I do think that that is going to be its such a great strength Adam has. And I think it's going to be a strength the NBA has as they deal with, as he put it yesterday, the greatest challenge of their lives.
0: Absolutely. Uh, we could keep going here. Uh, guys, this was a lot of fun. Uh, Bobby, thanks for jumping in. Rachel, happy Mother's Thank Day. to you. Yep. Happy Mother's Thank Day, you.
1: Rachel. you. I will be and, celebrating uh, it by not doing any third grade math.
0: <laughs> perfect. Perfect. All right. So of course you can catch the jump all week next week and throughout, right? Live right from <laughs> live from Rachel's first. <laughs> all right. Guys, thanks very much. Uh and we'll I know I'll catch you guys soon. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, ESPNs Rachel Nichols and Bobby Marks. You can listen to new and archived episodes of the Woach Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Stay safe out there. We'll catch you next time.